All right, good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 2? All right, let me say it again. This evening we find ourselves in the first main section of the book of Romans. This first section falls into the heading of condemnation. Because Paul, in it, wants to prove that the whole human race apart from Jesus Christ is condemned by God, which means at one point he's going to judge this world. Uh, why does he start off this epistle with such bad news? Well, ultimately, he wants to give you the good news. But you have to first let people know the bad news before they're willing to accept the good news. God's going to judge this world. Everyone's a fallen sinner. Everyone has no hope of being anything else but a fallen sinner, except they give their heart to Jesus Christ, and he redeems them. So we're getting to the good stuff. Right now we got to lay out the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we're in the bad and the ugly right now. And I see that every morning when I look in the mirror. So anyways, um, but Paul in the first 16 verses of Romans 2, as we've been working our way through these, very important stuff. And I mean, it's like, well, we're taking a long time on these. Yeah, but you have to understand this is at the heart of Paul's argument uh, that he's presenting. And the people that you uh, come in contact with and witness to, uh, this is where they're living. And this is why you need to know this, to share with them and uh, all. But see, in these first 16 verses of Romans 2, Paul gives six principles that become the basis by which God will judge this world, by which he will judge all people. And here they are. Knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motives. Now we've already looked at the first four principles of God's coming judgment, which brought us to number five, which we started looking at last time, impartiality. First of all, look at verse six, and then we're going to jump down to verse 11. So in verse six, Paul talks about God who will at one point render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Now, the idea behind the statement that there is no partiality with God is the fact that he doesn't favor certain people over others. He deals, and secondly, he deals fairly with all people according to the light or the knowledge each of them had. You see, as Paul's writing this letter, he's anticipating questions. He was the, the quintessential evangelist, and so he was anticipating questions. Questions like, are you saying then, Paul, that God judges everyone the same? Well, his answer is no, based on what he goes on to say, say, starting in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Let me stop there. In other words, again, there is no partiality with God. He is absolutely fair when he judges. Listen, and here's his point. If a person had the law of God, in other words, if they had the written law of God given to Israel through Moses, then they will be judged by God's written law on the day of judgment. And if they didn't have the law of God, well, they will be judged apart from God's written law. Or in other words, God's final judgment upon unbelievers will be totally impartial based on each person's light, the light they possessed, and what they did with it. 
Those who had the word of God would be judged by it. Those who didn't have the word of God or the Bible would be judged apart from it. And again, Paul's anticipating questions. Another one. Yes, but how can God judge the Gentiles when he didn't give them his divine laws, his word, as he did the Jewish people? Guys, many people think that because God gave the Jews the Torah, the law, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that means he favored them, favored the Jews, and uh, put the Gentiles at an unfair disadvantage. But Paul is going to tell us that, in fact, the opposite is kind of true. Having God's word is better than not having it. That's true. But with knowledge comes greater responsibility because people will be judged more severely for knowing God's truth but not living up to the light they possessed. It, it reminds me of what James said in chapter 3, verse 1 of his epistle. He said, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive, we shall receive a stricter judgment. In other words, is somebody goes into a teaching ministry, and now they're speaking for God, and they're studying God's word to teach it to others. As they study his word, they're learning about what God has said. They are being held by God accountable now to live out that truth. If they don't, well, they're going to incur the more strict judgment. It's just the idea that with knowledge comes responsibility. And whether you're talking about the Jewish people in Paul's day or the churchgoers living today, just because a person has access to God's word and goes to synagogue, we'll say, or uh, church every week, and these folks uh, hear the word of God proclaimed and taught, listen, if they only hear God's word but don't live it out in their lives, well, they will incur the greater condemnation on the day of judgment than a person who didn't have access to God's word. Now, hold on to that thought. We're going to talk in a moment about, well, what happens to them? How are they judged? Well, hang on to that. But one of the issues the New Testament writers addressed was the mentality that said, and they were writing these epistles, these letters to churches. Paul addressed this to churches. Churches are made up of Saved people, unsaved people, uh, they're made up of, of, of mature believers and new believers. So these were real folks with real situations going on. And so one of the things that the New Testament writers addressed was the mentality that said, if I go to synagogue or church and hear God's word, that's all I need to do, right? I mean, after all, I heard it. Some people think that going to church and simply hearing God's word is all God wants. If they do that in a Sunday morning, God's placated. They can do whatever they want the rest of the week. Because it really doesn't matter because they, they went to church, they heard the word of God proclaimed. Well, Paul's addressing that. In verse 13, he says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, hang on a second, because you read that and go, what is Paul teaching that a person can be justified can be saved by keeping the law no he's building to a he's going to make it very clear in chapter three that's not what he's talking about but right now he's building his argument and using some hypotheticals all right uh, understand though that before it's all over he's going to make it clear you cannot be saved by the law 
But right now, he's speaking hypothetically, all right? But the idea is that, listen, those people who hear God's law being proclaimed uh, are not just in the sight of God, but those who take it to heart and live it out. James said it in James 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, a lot of people come to church and they hear God's word taught. And again, they think that that makes them right with God. Because after all, I came to church, this other guy, he stayed home. So I'm more righteous than he is because I came, heard the word of God proclaimed. Well, it's great you're at church. But understand, by you coming to church and hearing the word of God being proclaimed, God's going to hold you accountable for what you've learned. Oh, so you're saying I shouldn't go to church at all? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, though, that if you're going to come to church, understand you're going to be held responsible by God to do what he has told you in his word, right? But again, some would say at this point, if a person didn't have the law of God, how can God possibly condemn them for not obeying it? Paul anticipates that question, especially in the light of what he said about the pagans in chapter 1, all right? And so in Paul's mind, I'm sure he was thinking something along the lines, look, what about the pagan who never heard the gospel, who never read the scriptures? How can God hold them responsible for not doing it? Paul tells us that God will not judge a person for what they didn't know. He will only judge them for what they did know but didn't obey. God's totally just, righteous, and fair. In other words, unbelievers will only be judged based on whatever light or truth they had. Look at verse Verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Look, there are three great reasons why the heathen is without excuse for being lost and condemned. Three great reasons. First of all, the creation. Secondly, conduct. And thirdly, conscience. Creation, conduct, and conscience. Let me go through these quickly. The first one, creation, we've already looked at in chapter 1. Where, where Paul said God has clearly revealed himself through the creation so that all unbelievers are without excuse because everyone can see the creation. It's not like you have to travel thousands of miles to see the creation. You look up in the night sky, you see uh, all the stars of heaven, the, the hosts of heaven, uh, all around is nature and things. So the creation is a clear revelation from God that he exists. And we went into this in great detail in chapter 1. Not the least of which is Psalm 19. For the creation declares the glory of God. The heavens show forth his handiwork. Day and day, day, and day they utter speech. Night and night they reveal knowledge. There's nothing where a person can go that the creation isn't speaking to them in a universal language. So, you know, first Paul says to us that unbelievers are condemned by God because the creation condemns them if they don't look at the creation and allow it to point them to God and so on. All right? Creation won't save anybody, but it's like you know a first step. Uh, wow, there must be a God because look at all this. 
uh, I would like to know him. It starts people down the road of knowing God. Secondly is conduct. Conduct. Verse 14 again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, listen, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, not having the written law of God, are a law to themselves. In other words, each person's heart becomes the tablets, if you will, upon which God has written his laws, even as were the stone tablets God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Paul tells us that their conduct, the conduct of unbelievers, based on the knowledge of the law written in their hearts, will be the basis for God's judgment upon them someday, on the day of judgment. One pastor had this to say in the subject. He said, and I quote, Throughout history, there have been many unbelievers who have been honest in business, respectful of their parents, uh, faithful to their wives or husbands, caring of their children, and generous to those in need, all of which are good things God's word commends. God's standard of justice is reflected in many secular judicial systems, wherein stealing, murder, and various other forms of immorality are considered wrong and made illegal. Many pagan philosophies, both ancient and modern, teach certain standards of ethics that closely parallel those in Scripture. The fact that such people did good things knowing they were ethically good proves they had knowledge of God's law written in their hearts. Therefore, if those people never come to trust in the true God, in Jesus Christ, their good deeds will actually witness against him on the day of judgment, end quote. That's something to think about, right? So you have the creation, which God holds unbelievers accountable for, you know, not looking at and letting it point them to God. Creation. Secondly, conduct. Now, we all have in our hearts this written code, God's law, where we know certain things, just we know it innately, uh, inherently, that certain things are wrong behaviors. Our society is trying over time to twist our thinking and make good look evil and evil look good. That's a sign of coming judgment. And I pray for revival and a great awakening because without it, our nation is doomed. Already we're seeing the effects, and God spoke this in uh, Isaiah, that woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. And woe is a term we see in the, uh, in the book of Revelation, which is associated with judgment. Judgment. The third one, though, creation, conduct, and then thirdly, conscience. Let me read verse 14 and 15 again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. The Bible says that God has written his laws in our hearts and has given us a warning system, if you will, which sounds the alarm when we break one of his laws. That warning system is our conscience, and the alarm is called guilt. Whenever a person, and they don't have to be a believer, whether believer or unbeliever, whenever a person violates one of God's laws, they feel guilty which is God's way of warning them that they have broken one of his commandments and need to repent and get right with him before he imposes judgment of some kind upon them. 
And so, guys, guilt is the alarm that begins to sound in a person's heart, telling them they have done something wrong, something God has forbidden. And yet, it's hard for people to live with guilt. It makes them feel bad. So most of them try to get rid of the guilt. Now, there's only three real ways that you can get rid of guilt. First of all, get rid of God. Okay, get rid of God. In other words, become an atheist, because by getting rid of God, you get rid of the guilt of violating his laws. No God, no guilt. Simple as that. First way to get rid of guilt is get rid of God. Second way is to get right with God. Okay, become a Christian by receiving Jesus as your Savior, whose blood washes the guilt of sin away. He paid the price. And number three, probably the most common, turn your conscience off. Turn your conscience off. Again, if a person breaks God's law or God's laws, the alarm of guilt begins to sound. That guilt is designed to, as Paul said in verse 15, either accuse them, accuse them, in other words, bear witness to their heart that they are guilty of breaking one of God's commandments and thus hopefully lead them to repentance, but more times than not, since guilt is very unpleasant and most people don't want to repent of whatever they're doing wrong, they will inevitably try to alleviate the guilt by excusing their sin in some way, justifying it, a lot of that going around, or by blaming someone else for the wrong that they have done. Well, it's not my fault, it's their fault. Yeah, but you did it. But, I, but yeah, he made me, or she made me, whatever. You know how that goes, right? Um, now listen, after a while, this becomes reflexive. It becomes reflexive. Whenever they violate God's commandments, they seek to turn the guilt off by either excusing themselves or accusing others until they, listen, short-circuit their conscience and render it inoperative. When a person effectively turns off their conscience, they are then flying blind, morally speaking, and will eventually crash. It's only a matter of time. John MacArthur, in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, gave this illustration and insight. Um, I thought it was very insightful. He said, and I quote, in 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Uh, investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before impact, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up. The pilot, eventually, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, snapped, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain. Everyone on board died. When I saw that tragic story on the news shortly after it happened, it struck me as a, as a perfect parable of the way modern people treat the warning messages of their consciences. The wisdom of our age says guilt feelings are always erroneous or hurtful. Therefore, we should switch them off. MacArthur asked, but is that good advice? End quote. Well, no, it's horrible advice. It's terrible advice. Advice that has led many lives to crash and burn. And again, guys, the way you switch off your conscience is to ignore it by justifying what you're doing is not wrong. 
Okay? Everyone's doing it. You excuse yourself. Or you blame someone else for why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, eventually, this leads to, as Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, our conscience is being seared as with a hot iron. If you've ever been burned badly, if, if you know anybody that's ever had like a three-degree burn on their forearm, or say, okay, when it heals, that area is insensate. You can't feel anything. Well, first of all, the skin is, is destroyed to the point where when it heals, it's hard. But also, all the nerve endings have been seared, rendering it where you can't feel anything. It's insensitive to touch. Paul is saying you can do that with your, con with your conscience. You can continue certain behaviors. And as the Holy Spirit keeps working through your conscience to warn you, to alert you, look, you're on a bad course. You better pull up. You better get your life right because bad stuff is coming. Judgment, if you don't get your life right now with God right now. But you, they keep ignoring it, ignoring it, ignoring it. After a point, their, their conscience is no longer sensitive to the touch of the Holy Spirit. And once that happens, they are now able to do all kinds of things without any guilt, remorse, or whatever. They become robots, just sinning without any conscience at all. The result is unbridled sin in the absence of all moral restraint, especially in the last days. Turn to 1 Timothy 4. And let's read what Paul said about this. 1 Timothy 4, starting with verse 1. Now, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, in the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Turn to Ephesians 4. And let's read verse 19. Talking about these very people that have their conscience seared because of their continuous ignoring the warnings. Who being past feeling, again, their conscience has been rendered inoperative. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The more people in a society that do this, that turn their consciences off, the more that society will become wicked and rebellious toward God, yes, but also toward those that God has placed in authority over their lives, their parents, their teachers, the police officers, and anyone else in authority. They become rebellious by nature and don't feel guilty at all. And the thing that I have seen that, that has exacerbated this whole thing in our society is when the consequences of violating the laws of God and or the laws of a society are removed, it promotes the mentality that criminals are not really doing anything wrong when they break the law because if it was wrong, there would be consequences. The fact that our leaders have removed the consequences sends a, sends a message to them that our leaders recognize our laws are unjust. And if our laws are unjust, then me breaking those laws, I'm not doing anything wrong, which allows them to turn their conscience off. The result is lawlessness and anarchy. 
I can't help but think of the madness of this no-cash bail, where people can commit all kinds of crimes, be out in a couple hours without any bail posted, back on the streets, I mean, you know, rape, brutally beating people, stealing all kinds of things. If they are arrested, they're let out in a couple hours, back on the streets to do, there's no consequences, it seems. But guys, the consequences for breaking God's laws in conjunction with the human conscience were designed by God to be the restraint on man's fallen nature, to keep it in check so that it didn't run wild. Remove the restraints and the result is unbridled sin, violence, and rebellion at every level of society, especially in the last days. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. We are living in the last days, and if you don't think so, well, it's as Jesus said, lawlessness would abound, the love of many would grow cold. And Paul tells us here, these would characterize, these things, behaviors, would characterize people living in the last days. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, and I'll read it to you out of the NLT. You should know this, Timothy. That in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. Folks, I say it all the time when I read that passage, that's the evening news. That's the evening news. It will have no natural affection, Jesus said. I just read a story this afternoon about a woman in Florida. Uh, her and her husband split. She had a daughter from another relationship. Together they had one son who was 10. The daughter was 19. And so they were in this bitter custody battle. They had gotten divorced. And uh, I don't know any of the details. I just know that she lost custody. Must have been some real problems there. And so she was to turn over her son, his son as well, to him. And so... What she did was she took a gun, killed her daughter, killed her son, and then killed herself. Now, people say, well, obviously the poor woman was mentally insane. Look, I don't know what the poor woman was or was not. Yeah, maybe there were some mental issues. Maybe there were some demonic issues. Maybe she was into the occult. I don't know. Or maybe she was just a rabid narcissist who when she couldn't get what she wanted, decided just to go out in a blaze of glory and take everybody with her that, you know, she loved that she wouldn't share with anybody else. I'm not going to cut her a break, and God's certainly not going to cut her a break in the day of judgment. She knew well enough what she was doing that she planned this out, took a weapon, and took three lives. And she'll stand before God someday and give an account. But this is what we see today, and that is not an isolated thing. We see today, and of course, society keeps trying to, to uh, give them a pass. 
Now look, if a person's got mental illness, we should help them. If a person is addicted to drugs, don't give them more drugs. Help them, get them into programs. But this idea that we just excuse them and let them run wild and create havoc and anarchy and killing people, over the, pushing people in front of moving uh, subway trains and everything else, that's ridiculous. That's the breakdown of society. I, I don't want to get off into that whole thing. But you understand what we're talking about. Everywhere we look, there are signs that we're in the last days based on everything the Bible has said that would go on. But look, back to this idea about unbelievers who don't have the written word of God, how God can judge them. He's going to judge them based on creation, conduct, and conscience. Now, if an unbeliever lives up to that much light, creation, conduct, and conscience, listen to me, God will make sure they get more light, enough light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby they will be saved. God never lets anyone go to hell for lack of information. If their heart wants to know the truth, if their heart wants to know him, and he knows the heart. So the idea that somebody will go to hell that could have gone to heaven if they only had the Bible or the word of God, that's ridiculous. During the tribulation period, I think it's Revelation 14, God's going to send an angel to fly through the heavens. If this was a literal angel or some kind of broadcasting system, I don't know. doesn't matter. But this angel is going to proclaim the everlasting gospel to every person on the face of the earth so nobody can say, I never knew. And don't you know that if God's going to do that then, he's already done it up until today. I mean, there, I've heard stories and I've told you that. That God has sent angels to remote tribal areas to witness to, to people that um, so far removed from civilization that no missionary has ever gotten that far in to Africa or the outback of Australia, whatever. And God has revealed to people about his son and what he did because these people were open. They had a heart that wanted to know the truth about him. Jesus said in John 7, 17, If anyone wills to do God's will, God will make sure they get the doctrine, the teaching they need. You'll know the truth if you're open to knowing the truth. Let me share with you a true story a pastor shared along these lines. It's a mind blower. It, it speaks exactly to what we're talking about. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, A man of my acquaintance is an excellent illustration of God's honoring a genuine quest to find him. This man grew up in one of the most primitive tribes in Africa. Because he was ill-behaved and incorrigible as a child, he was frequently made to stay outside when the family had guests. Although he was severely punished by the tribe as well as by his mother, he persisted in acts of pointless mischief and even cruelty. He reports that he felt guilty and heartsick even while he was doing the mischief, but could not seem to help himself. He knew something was very wrong with his life and would often go into the forest and pound his head against a tree crying, What's wrong with me? Why do I do such things? More than once, he considered suicide. One day, one of his friends returned from a visit to the coast. Among the many fascinating stories he told was that of some people who met 
together every Sunday to sing and talk. When the boy asked his friend why those people met together, he was told they were that they were singing about uh, they were singing about and praying to the God who had created the whole world. They called their God Father and believed he heard and answered their prayers. With that small bit of knowledge about the Lord, the, the boy over whom the tribe had despaired decided to pray to this God himself. I had never heard anyone pray, he recounts, but I decided I would just talk to this God like, I, like he was my father. I can't explain what happened, but it was an exciting experience. I wanted to know more about this God, but there was no one in our village who knew anything about him. So for two years, I kept praying by myself on Sundays, hoping that someday someone would come along who could tell me about him. While working on a government road project, he visited his cousin in the village where he had been born and discovered to his great surprise and delight that a group of people met there on Sundays to sing and pray to the God he had heard about. How excited I was, he says. I could hardly wait for Sunday. That morning, I sat in the back. I listened to a man tell about God for the first time in my life. I found he was far more wonderful than I had, I had ever imagined. The preacher said that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son named Jesus to take away my sins. I wondered if he knew how terrible I was. I wondered if he knew the awful things I had done back in my village. But the preacher said no matter what I had done, God would forgive me and make my heart clean. I knew it was all true. The pastor said, because that young man had been genuinely seeking God, when he finally heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit confirmed its truth to his yearning heart. He knew that God had heard his prayers and had sent him to a place where he could hear the message of salvation. The man said, I gave my heart to God that morning, he testified, and it was nice to know he had a son too. He was really a father, just like I had been praying to, end quote. So guys, the first five principles that become the basis upon which God will judge all people are knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, which brings us to the sixth and final principle, motives. Look at verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will, be, will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Jump down to verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So God's judgment is coming. It's coming to all unbelievers whether they had access to God's word, the Bible, or the only testimony they had of God was the creation. But God is going to judge someday. And in that day, verse 16 tells us, God will judge the secrets of men, women, by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Jesus said, Luke 12, verses 2 and 3, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. 
Matthew 12, 36. But I say to you, Jesus said, but I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of in the day of judgment. Now, guys, we have said when we looked at verse 6 that on judgment day, God will render to each one according to his or her deeds. But here in verse 16, Paul takes it a step further. It tells us that not only will God judge the deeds of unbelievers, the outward actions of their lives, he will also judge the secrets of men's hearts, or in other words, the motives behind their actions. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. I've got a whole bunch of scriptures I want to read to you. I'll have you turn to a few of them. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. All these scriptures speak to what Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, of darkness and reveal, listen, the counsels or the motives of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. Turn to Psalm 139. You all know this one pretty well. Psalm 139, let's pick it up in verse 1, where the psalmist said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. I'm not going to give you the context of each of these scriptures. You'll have to just write them down and look it up. This one, David is turning the kingdom over to Solomon. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Of course, we've already read 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? <laughs> I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the inner thoughts of his heart, according to the fruit of his or her doings. Second Chronicles 6, verse 30. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive. And give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. Proverbs 15, verse 11. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. 
so how much more the hearts of the sons of men? Isaiah 66, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. I shall, it shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. How have you turned to one more? Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Guys, in the judgment, not only will the outward actions of a person's life be judged, but also the inward attitudes of their heart. Or in other words, God will not only judge the works they did, he will also judge what motivated them to do those works. The motivation of their heart. Turn to Romans 14. I'll have you turn to this and to the next one. But Romans 14, starting with verse 10. Talking about judgment now. Judgment. Romans 14, 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us shall give, a, shall give account of himself to God. And if anyone thinks they're going to try to pull the wool over God's eyes, they better think again. Because he knows exactly what's in their heart. Exactly. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And let's start with verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, in other words, whether we're with you or we're not with you physically, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Guys, the judgment seat that Paul speaks of in Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians 5 was the judicial bench of a city court in the Roman Empire. This was a, what we would consider to be, um, Civil court, civil court, all right, where if you violate laws of the society, in this case the Roman Empire, uh, you were brought before magistrates, governors, those who were in authority, and you were put on trial if that's what you had done was worthy of a trial, and uh, a judgment would be made to your guilt or innocence and the punishes that would, you would have to endure if you were found guilty. But again, this judgment seat that we read about over and over in the New Testament, it's many times used of, a, of a, a punitive judgment. A punitive, in other words, judgment that carries with it punishment. Now, as we have said before, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just say this. We read about Pilate's judgment seat that Jesus eventually appeared before, right? Um, I'll just read you two passages. Matthew 27, verse 19. 
While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, Jesus Christ, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So here Pilate was sitting on his judgment seat. Same Greek word. It was, this was a civil court. Uh, John 19, verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew it's Gabbatha. So Jesus is standing before a secular judge. Now, Pilate was the governor of that region, and um, he was Jesus was standing before him in a civil trial sense. Now, guys... And we've talked about this um, a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to get into it again in detail. But when Paul talks about in um, 2 Corinthians 5, that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things we have done, whether good or bad. I personally believe that the judgment seat that he's talking about is, of course, Christ's judgment seat. But you have to understand something. When believers approach that judgment seat, our judgment is different than when unbelievers approach that judgment seat. Okay? Um, this judgment of believers and unbelievers. So, and we'll get to it in a second. I'm going to, we have a little time left. But the, the judgment, if you read John 5, verses 28 and 29. It sounds like there is just one great resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. But we have to go into Revelation to find out that really they're separated by, I think, at least a thousand seven years. What does that mean? I believe in a pre-trib rapture. So believers are going to be raptured before the tribulation period officially begins. That will last seven years. And then Jesus Christ will come back and establish his kingdom, which will last another thousand years. The judgment of believers is going to take place at the time of the rapture. But our judgment is not going to be punitive. It's a rewards judgment. The things that we have done in this body in serving Jesus, we're going to be rewarded. There's no punishment. He took all the punishment on Calvary's cross for all believers. Now, the Judgment of unbelievers, that is going to be punitive. All right? Let's quickly look at, just briefly, the judgment of believers. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. And while you're doing that, I want to read to you Revelation 22, verse 12, where Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So what's in view here is Jesus coming for his church. And he tells us that when he comes, when the rapture happens, uh, we're going to be rewarded. So we'll stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. To, he won't be our judge. He's our loving Savior because we accepted him on the earth. And as our loving Savior, we served him. And as we did with the right motives, he's going to reward us. And we'll look at that right now. 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. You can read the whole context at your leisure, but now if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus being 
technically that foundation. If anyone builds on this foundation, in other words, serves God, serves God, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clearer for the day, day of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Okay, keep that in mind. If anyone's work which he has done, uh, excuse me, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What is Paul talking about? Well, and we've looked at this passage before. I won't spend a lot of time with it. But basically what he's saying is this. So the rapture has happened. And now we're receiving our rewards. Okay? And it looks like, if you can just picture this in your, in your mind, imagine that you're, you're, you're holding all the things you did for Jesus, all the works that you did for him in his name to, you, 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 to lay on, on his, his foundation. Um, you know, the works that glorified him, we'll say. You got all these works, and you're, you're approaching his throne to lay these works at his feet. Apparently, we're going to have to walk through some kind of fire. And the fire is going to test the works, what sort they were. In other words, what motivated the works we did for Jesus, okay? If our motivation was pure, the works will last they will not be burned up if we did these things for him and our motives weren't pure the works will be burned up but we would be saved because we're saved by grace right now this begs the question guys what motives will produce works that are like gold silver and precious stones in the eyes of god i'll give you two scriptures the first one we've already studied romans 2 verse 7 eternal life to those and he's talking here about the the marks or the qualities of a believer then he gets into the qualities of unbelievers uh, in the church but eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honor and immortality now these are the characteristics of true believers what are they seeking after what is their motive in serving god well if they're true christians Walking in the Spirit, their motive is going to be for God's glory, God's honor, while they keep their eyes on the immortal. Or in other words, keep their eyes on eternity. They're not living for the earth. They're not laying up for themselves treasures on the earth. Their motive is not to, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, some people believe in the church, some people believe that, um, you know, that knowing God, serving God is a way to get rich. There's a lot of charlatans out there, Right? Yeah, they're on television all over the place using the name of Jesus and they're making money, making merchandise, as Peter said, off of God's people, right? Some people believe that godliness is a way to get rich. That's what Paul said. And so it's important that we understand that a motive for serving God that's going to be accepted by him is something that's precious, gold, silver, precious stones is a motive that seeks God's glory, God's honor, and keeps our eyes on eternity because we're not laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. We're looking for uh, our eternal rewards. But I'll have you turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 
And let's put it up in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Guys, any other motive than serving God for his glory and because you love people made in his image and you want to see them saved or do whatever you can to help them in life if they're poor, if they're whatever. That's what ministry is, right? Giving our, our, our life, our time to people that you know need a little encouragement, need somebody to kind of come alongside them and help them to walk with God and so on. Uh, any other motive than the glory of God and a love for those made in God's image is wood, hay, and straw in the eyes of God. It's going to burn up because, you know, then it was all about me. All right? The Christian life is all about Jesus. It's not about us. So much done in the church in the way of service is motivated by, listen, self-interest, carnal motivation, the desire for recognition. I've had people want to serve because they want to get close to me and become a, uh, an elder in the church. They, they crave that position, okay? A desire for recognition, self-promotion, pride, and the praise of men. A lot of it is, so much of it is not done for Jesus' glory at all. It's done for their glory. Paul said in Galatians 1 verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In ministry, you have to decide who you want to serve, who do you want recognition from? People? Because you like the praise of men. Jesus said of the Pharisees. They love the praise of men. That's why they crave the chief seats in the synagogues and be up in front at the feasts. They love it when people say, Oh, my rabbi, my rabbi, my great one, my teacher. Jesus said they have their reward. And Paul picked up on that, no doubt, and said, Look, if I seek to serve God to please men so that they give me glory, I'm not a servant of Christ. I'm my own servant. But if I serve him for his glory alone to please him, that's precious in God's eyes. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for Christ's love compels us. That's, that's the motivation that God will honor when we serve him on this earth. It's not self-glory compels me. It's the love of Christ compels me. That's a, the bottom line motive, right? you got to have that. So um, we'll pick it up here, God willing, next time. We looked briefly at the judgment of believers. I want to just look very quickly at the judgment of unbelievers, and then we will move on. And uh, some very important things coming that Paul wants to tell us. So uh, come on back next week. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. We thank you that you love sinners. And by your grace and through what Jesus did on Calvary's cross, 
you invite sinners to become your sons and daughters. We thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. And we ask that you would keep blessing these studies in your word, that your spirit would continue to be our teacher, that, uh, Lord, we might understand what you have said and by your grace apply it into our lives. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.